There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. It is evident that human beings have a spiritual problem requiring a spiritual solution. Different opinions about that solution exist in various religions and are titled or explained different ways. We're going to explore what a few of these religions have to say and how those beliefs compare to Christianity. We're going to touch on Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and possibly a couple of others. So what is man's dilemma and how is it solved? Let's find out what Islam, the Muslim faith, has to say. Though Muslims accept a slightly altered version of the biblical story of Adam and Eve, Islam does not teach that the fall of the four parents of the human race caused a transfer of original sin to the offspring of Adam and Eve. That is a belief in Christianity, but not in Islam. Human beings become sinners by sinful acts only, not because of a sinful fallen nature. However, they do need to repent before God, and that's called Tawbah, to be restored to a state of sinlessness. The primary path to salvation centers around submission to Allah, submission to the Quran, and submission to what is called the five pillars of Islam. And I think we should go over those. Number one is Shahada, which is the daily profession of faith. Summed up in the statement, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Number two, the second pillar of Islam is Salat. Prayer must be made facing Mecca five times a day. And that's, uh, of course, scattered all throughout the day, beginning very early in the morning. Number three is Ramadan, which is the month of fasting. It's called Psalm. And during that month of Ramadan, Muslims cannot eat, drink, smoke, or have sexual relations between dawn and sunset. And then number four, Zakat, is almsgiving. Two and a half percent or one fortieth of the annual savings must be donated to charity. And finally, the fifth pillar of Islam is Hajj, and that is a pilgrimage to Mecca. Every Muslim is expected to make a journey to Mecca once in his or her lifetime where the Kaaba is located. That's the big building covered in black that was supposedly constructed by Abraham, containing a black stone that is taught to have been given by the angel Gabriel. So there you have it, the five pillars of Islam, Shahada, the daily profession of faith, Salat, prayer made toward Mecca five times a day, Ramadan, the month of fasting, Zakat, almsgiving, two and a half percent, and Hajj, 
a pilgrimage to Mecca. So that sets Islam apart from all other religions. It's not similar to any other religion as far as the stipulations to be saved. And of course, repentance is emphasized within Islam and that repentance can restore a person to sinlessness before God. But there's never a real absolute confidence in that state of acceptability in the sight of God. Even Muhammad himself, when he was nearing death, was not absolutely sure that he was saved, according to that which I have read. Now let's go to Hinduism. And what we would term salvation in Christianity, which is the final resolution of the human problem, is called moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A, in Hinduism, which means liberation. But liberation from what? Well, let me explain it. The goal in Hinduism is to achieve God consciousness and thus escape the cycle of rebirth. And there you understand why the word liberation is used, being liberated from samsara, which is this continual rebirth into the natural world. And Hindus teach that there are many, many incarnations that a soul passes through before it achieves moksha. And this is accomplished many ways. This final release is attained through meditation, yoga, pilgrimages, worshiping various deities, good works, and keeping certain religious traditions, like one example, bathing in the Ganges River, which is supposed to do away with all negative karma if that is performed right before a person's death. So Hindus teach, though, that there are three main paths to salvation, the way of knowledge, the way of devotion, and the way of works. And those are also spoken of as being jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, and karma yoga. And the word yoga means union with God. It comes from a word that means yoke, and it implies being yoked to God. Yoga is inseparably, inextricably a part of Hinduism. Those Hindus who believe that the universe is an emanation of God and that all things actually are God believe that an important step toward other impo another important goal is to be freed from the delusion of believing in separate selves. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, they believe that part of our problem is the delusion of thinking that our souls, referred to as Atman, are separate from Brahman, which is the oversoul. And uh, and that's a delusion. That's a false concept concerning our spiritual condition. So the way to salvation is to realize, or they wouldn't term it salvation, enlightenment is a closer term, but the way to achieve that is to come to the supernatural realization that the Atman and Brahman are one and the same, that we are God, and therefore 
our ultimate goal is to blend in to the Godhead in absolute oneness. There are different systems of thought in Hinduism, however. For instance, Sankara, who was an 8th century teacher, taught that when the Atman, the soul, is released from the cycle of rebirth, it does not retain its personality. And that's based on the idea that ultimate reality is an impersonal life force. So you blend in with that impersonal life force. But Ramanuja, who was an 11th century Indian philosopher, argued that souls retain their individuality and instead have eternal communion with God, that God is personal. And so there's diversity of beliefs within the ranks of those who align with Hinduism. Some Hindus believe that the jiva, which is the individual life force within a human being, is granted human form only after incarnating 8,400,000 times in lower forms of life. And so salvation can only be experienced or enlightenment or whatever term is given to it. Moksha, of course, is the Hindu term, liberation. After this incredibly long journey through various stages that ultimately ends in release from the cycle of rebirth. Now let's go to Buddhism. Buddhism is similar yet quite different in some ways. And different opinions exist within Buddhism, as in most religions, concerning the means of what we might call salvation. Pure Land Buddhism, which is a sect of Mahayana Buddhism, instructs its followers that they must put their trust in Amida Buddha, who is the Buddha of infinite light, different than the original Buddha, in order to be saved. So that's trust in an individual Buddha. However, most Buddhists uh, believe that final liberation happens when a person achieves nirvana. And nirvana is described as non-being, non-being, the extinction of personal existence by absorption into pure being. It is passionless peace, detached serenity, cessation of desire, and freedom from both pain and pleasure. Now, most Buddhists resist the idea that nirvana is the annihilation of the soul because they believe there is no such thing as a soul to annihilate. But to achieve nirvana, a person must embrace the Four Noble Truths and live by the Noble Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths are very succinctly explained by these statements. Number one, life is full of suffering. Number two, suffering is the result of desire. Number three, to overcome suffering, therefore, we must overcome desire. And number four, that is achieved by following the Noble Eightfold Path. And so it's, of course, a religion based on works, a religion which it is necessary to achieve a measure of perfection or a place of complete wholeness in a person's life 
by fulfilling this call to follow the Eightfold Path. Now, let me uh, sum them up by giving them to you very succinctly. The Eightfold Path is, number one, right knowledge, number two, right thought, number three, right speech, number four, right conduct, number five, right livelihood, number six, right effort, number seven, right mindfulness, and number eight, right meditation. However, I think it's important to see that, yes, it's wonderful to seek to live right, do right, be right in everything that you say and do, but the definition of rightness within Buddhism is different than the definition of what is right in Islam or Hinduism or Christianity. Just one example, right meditation a Buddhist monk may meditate by staring at a dot on the wall in order to empty the mind of all thought and achieve higher states of mystical consciousness. That's not the way of meditation biblically. Biblically, we fill the mind, not empty it, by focusing on Scripture and dwelling prayerfully and worshipfully on what God has said in His Word and lingering before God and asking him to give us inspiration concerning the meaning of those passages. So just because within the framework of Buddhism, one of the steps toward nirvana is right meditation, what we consider right meditation as Christians is much different than what a Buddhist would consider right meditation. I think it's also interesting to see that the word nirvana uh, in its original language, means blowing out, like the blowing out of a candle. And once again, it means cessation of personal existence. That goal is the highest achievement for a Buddhist. Quite different than that is Christianity that believes that we do have a soul, and that soul has a permanent existence in fellowship with the Creator if we fulfill the criteria expected in Christianity. So it's a much different approach and a much different belief system. Let's go to Judaism. In Judaism, the emphasis is something called covenant. In the Hebrew, it's the word berit, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H. And if you're in covenant with God, that means God is committed to you, but it also means you are committed to God. You bind yourself to God and you bind yourself to the keeping of the Torah. The Torah uh, embraces the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And within those five books, there are 613 commandments. And in order to achieve salvation, it is very important to obey those 613 commandments. Personal salvation in Judaism, though, is based on repentance, good deeds, adherence to the commandments, as I just said, and yet it's also mixed with a strong, strong trust, not in self-achieved righteousness, but in the mercy of God. It does not teach a fallen nature that a person must be, quote-unquote, saved from, as taught in Christianity. Rather, every person is born good and can remain good if the right choices are made in life. Rightness with God is always obtainable, but especially so on Yom Kippur, 
which is the 10th day of the seventh month, called the Day of Atonement. And a very strong emphasis, again, let me reiterate, is abiding in covenant with God. Jewish males are circumcised as a sign of that covenant originally given to Abraham. Now, there are differences of opinion within Judaism. Traditional Orthodox Judaism has defined the 613 commandments through halakha, which is the way, the customs and practices that should be performed. And Orthodox Jews are very, very strict in adhering to some things that other Jews may feel are no longer important. For instance, modern Reformed Judaism does not teach that this is required, and the conservative movement has redefined it with a more modernistic view. But primarily, Judaism focuses on repentance, good deeds, compassionate deeds, and adherence to the moral code given in the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. All right, next is Christianity. Now, I became a Christian in 1970, and I was, prior to that, raised a Catholic. I never experienced being born again as a Catholic, and consequently felt that Christianity was just another system of religious beliefs. And so I turned to Eastern religions. I became a student of an Indian guru. I eventually taught yoga, kundalini yoga, at four universities and ran a yoga ashram. And then through a remarkable series of events that was clearly divine intervention, I came into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do one episode at the very beginning on just my story of encountering the Lord Jesus. But there are eight primary things, simple yet primary, that a person must act out in his or her life in order to be saved according to Christianity. First of all, number one and number two is repentance and conversion. Repentance and conversion. The best place for me to take you to is Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. This is a message that Peter is bringing right after the crippled man at the gate beautiful was healed. And Peter said, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, to repent simply means to have a change of mind. And the word converted means three things. It's a word that has a triune meaning. It means to turn away from, to turn toward, and to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so those are the first two steps in order to be saved from a biblical point of view, repentance and conversion. Then faith is very necessary. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So you must believe. Believe in what? Believe in things like the name of Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Mashiach. You must believe in the fact that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. You must believe that he rose again. You must believe that he was the only incarnation of God into this world. 
But when you come to God, you may stumble through those things and have a hard time fully, sincerely embracing them. But if you make an attempt to believe as you pray an initial prayer, God will honor that. Number four is confession, a confession of faith. And to illustrate that, we go to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there you have the next step in Christianity, and that's confession. Repentance, conversion, faith, and confession. Then according to Ephesians 3.17, the fifth most important aspect is receiving Jesus into your heart. Ephesians 3.17 says, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. The Messiah will come to live inside of you. The number six is calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not a name given to deity in any culture or religion, but the name. There is one specific name, the Bible says, is a name above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, ultimately at the end of all things. Then number seven, which really is the product of the six steps prior to it, is spiritual rebirth. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, gives the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. And he said, Master, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do what you do except God be with him. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the word translated again there is anathen, which also is translated from above. And the implication is when you're born again, you're born from above. Just as your physical body comes out of your mother's womb when you're born the first time, a new spirit comes out from God and is deposited within you when you're born from above, when you're born the second time. And that spirit is created in righteousness and true holiness, is created with an infusion of the presence of God, and you're immediately in contact with God again and in communion with him. Then number eight, the outer sign of this new life dawning in your life is baptism. Baptism is expected to be the final step in your eight-step journey toward salvation in Christianity, because in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.'" That's Matthew 28, 19. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the indwelling of the presence of God, which is the final solution to man's dilemma. Our whole problem stems from the fact that we're born separate from God, and we need to be reunited with God 
And that only comes through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the promise of him dwelling in your heart. If you've never done that, I urge you to do it today. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.